0: We're especially delighted to have back our our brother Cecil, we enjoyed the meetings last night and uh, we we were thoroughly blessed, we were talking about it uh, quite late, uh, Rosie and I at home uh, as to some of the things that he was saying and I I, I just went home and I I thought, uh, in fact I was getting into bed with the thought, uh, has the Roman Catholic Church changed? And I was thinking that's a great title for a sermon and maybe an article in the paper but uh, anyway, uh, we're delighted that he's here. Do you remember the meeting tomorrow night, just before he comes? Um, Reverend John Greer will be here to preach in the Doctrine of Justification by Faith Alone, which goes right to the very heart, of course, of the rediscovery of the gospel uh, by Martin Luther and those reformers with him. And then on Thursday night, then another related uh, message, the, the priesthood of all believers. Uh, and, uh, and that's very important. You see, every believer in Christ, has direct access to God on the ground of the blood. Every believer in Christ has assistance and help in the place of prayer, and every believer in Christ has the assurance that God hears and God answers their <laughs> prayer. And that was totally revolutionary in Luther's day. It was unheard of because it was the, the intermediaries or the the, the mediators, like the, the priest and uh, and uh, Mary as uh, co-mediatrix, uh, w- was speaking to God on behalf of the people. Uh, So uh, that's a tremendous truth that that will encourage your heart uh, on Thursday night. Then do remember on Friday night, uh, looking forward to Mr. Wallace Thompson coming and speaking to us on the reversal of the Reformation. Uh, So I'll hand straight over to Brother Cecil. Okay, the Lord bless you. Thank you.
1: Well friends, it is a joy to be back with you again tonight and again I want to thank David for his warm words of welcome. Uh, I'm shortly going to read a short portion of scripture but before I do that, in case there would be those here tonight who weren't there last night, uh, let me just quickly recap some of the things that I said. I dealt with first of all the reasons for the Reformation and I mentioned that there were social and political reasons for it. and in particularly in relation to the political area. I mentioned how up until 1978, uh, the Pope, when he was being installed, he was crowned with a silver tiara and he was endowed with all sorts of power in heaven and on earth and everywhere else. And uh, I told you that that was from Lorraine Butner's book, uh, Roman Catholicism. And I then mentioned how the papacy uh, hadn't been behind the door and exercising that power and how they had over the centuries deposed at least 64 emperors and kings, and uh, also how Pope Pass V had issued a bull depriving Queen Elizabeth I of her pretended right to reign. And I mentioned that just because Rome doesn't assert that claim today, we're not to take it that she has renounced it. They're just claims that are not asserted. And those last bits of information I should have mentioned were from a book called The Papacy by the Reverend J.A. Wiley, who also wrote uh, a great uh, book The History of Protestantism. And that book, The Papacy, in 1851, it actually won first prize in an essay competition organized by the Evangelical Alliance. And I have often said that perhaps if that transcript was submitted to them today, rather than giving it an award, they would probably shred it because unfortunately things have changed since that organization was founded. But the main reason for the Reformation was theological and doctrinal. Luther, by the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, discovered the truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And we saw that to be justified, it was a legal pronouncement by a judge who said, You're innocent. The law has no claim against you. Therefore, there is no penalty for you to pay. As opposed to if he condemns you, then the law has a claim against you and there is a penalty for you to pay. And Luther discovered that the just shall live by faith and not by adding on religious works. And we saw, in fact, that the Roman Catholic religion is very much the modern-day equivalent of the Judaizers who plagued Paul in his days when he was spreading the gospel. So that was the main reason for the Reformation. And then the reaction to it, I pointed to the Council of Trent where Rome codified, in other words, they sat down and print everything that they believe about everything, and as well as codifying it, they also included condemnations, which basically meant, if you don't believe what we're saying, then you're under the curse of God. And then I talked about censoring, or um, countering and culling, and to counter the Reformation, the Jesuits were established, and their aim in life, and it still is, is to counter And overturned the Reformation. And then there was the culling where Rome again reverted to form and she reinstated the Inquisition which had operated in centuries past where people were brought before this tribunal, they were tried, found to be heretics and they were sentenced to death. And then there was also censoring where they reinforced their ban on the ordinary Roman Catholic reading various books They did relax it later, but if they read the Bible, they are not allowed to interpret it. The only people who can interpret it are the magisterium, the Pope and the cardinals. And they tell the priests what they have to tell the people. And so the magisterium is the ultimate authority in Rome, not the Bible and not their sacred tradition. And then in Vatican I, which was in the middle of the 19th century, Uh, One of the things they did was they reaffirmed everything in the Council of Trent. Uh, Plus they added a couple of extra things. They basically declared the Pope infallible when he was speaking on faith and morals. And they also declared him basically untouchable, that he can exercise his power unhindered at any time. And then in Vatican II in the 1960s, this again reaffirmed everything that was in the Council of Trent. So if somebody tells you, oh, Trent doesn't apply now, they don't know what they're talking about. Trent applies as much today as it did when it was drawn up in the 16th century. So Vatican II was very much a public relations exercise to make the Roman Catholic Church appear as if it had changed, to make it more user-friendly, if I could put it that way. But what was at the heart of it, and of course, all the heretical doctrines and practices, those are still in place but their hope was that they could persuade liberal-minded, ecumenical uh, Protestant ministers and pastors to convince them that Rome has changed and we are now fellow Christians and we can spiritually work together. So that's where we got to last night and we're gonna look tonight at the reversal of the Reformation and as I said last night, although that's the topic for Friday night with Wallace Thompson, uh, he and I have been in touch with each other and hopefully we are not overlapping. So it's reversal of the Reformation and then rejoicing in the Reformation. But as a backdrop to what I want to say tonight, I want to turn to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. These will be verses very familiar to you. Second Corinthians and chapter 6. 2 Corinthians and chapter 6. And we have to remember that these are People in Corinth who have been saved out of a pagan, immoral form of spirituality. And Paul finds it necessary to write to them along these lines. He says in verse 14, Be, not, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So you can see here that Paul is concerned that these professing converts to Christianity out of the pagan, immoral, spiritual background, it would appear that they're not putting enough clear blue water between them and their pagan past. And he's saying to them, particularly when it comes to Uh, spiritual matters, when it comes to marital matters if you like, you must not entangle yourself with those who are unbelievers, because the old adage is you will not bring them up to your standards, they will drag you down to their standards. And so it's clear that people who have been saved out of darkness and brought into the light, they must walk in the light and remain in the light. So let's just a little backdrop to what I want to share with you tonight. Now, as I say, our our third heading in our study is Reversal of the Reformation. Now, I was converted back in 1984. I was saved on the 19th of August, 1984, up in the gallery of the Martyr's Memorial, if that is of any interest to you. Uh, But three years prior to that, as I was later to discover, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Pope had agreed that they would set up uh, an organization where there would be theologians from each community who would meet together on a regular basis to consider important issues. And the name of this grouping was ARCIC, the Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission. And over the years they have published a number of documents where they have looked at various issues. And one of the issues they looked at was salvation and the church. And this is what they said. This is the conclusion that they reached. It said, we are agreed this is, this is not an area where any remaining differences of theological interpretation or ecclesiological emphasis either within or between our communions can justify our continuing separation. We believe that our two communions are agreed on the essential aspects of the doctrine of salvation and on the church's role within it. So they believed they were agreed on salvation. And I showed you last night that Rome's understanding of salvation, that justification to them was not the pronouncement as we saw from Deuteronomy 25 verse 1. But for Rome, it is a process. You have to go through the sacramental system where when you're born as a baby, uh, you have been deprived of the, the supernatural grace life that Adam forfeited in the Garden of Eden. And so you need initial justifying grace and that's why they immediately get the baby baptised. And in many ways the Roman Catholic system of salvation is a bit like snakes and ladders. You get infused with grace and you're going up the ladder but then sin wipes out that grace and you slide down the snake and you're back down to rock bottom so you've got to get more grace infused into you and as you get older the means of doing that is through confirmation or the sacrament of penance or the sacrifice of the mass and so on and so it's up and down one day you're justified you're in a state of grace and then you lose it and you're out of grace and you're no longer justified that's the Roman Catholic system And here are the Anglicans saying that they are basically in agreement with the Roman Catholic Church. Well, uh, that was what they stated. And we can see the fruit of these Arctic discussions. Uh, The British Church newspaper, I get it on a regular basis. Uh, And just to mention uh, some examples of how Arctic has uh, affected us to this day. Uh, Back in September of last year, it said... 36 Anglican and Roman Catholic bishops will meet in Canterbury and Rome for a summit in October of this year. The purpose of the meeting will be to discover new ways by which Roman Catholics and Anglicans can witness to their common faith on the basis of the agreed statements of Archic. So you can see the fruit of Archic. It's still happening today, this idea that Rome and the Anglicans are agreed in salvation. Uh, in March of this year, uh, it re- reports... For the first time ever, Anglican Choral Evensong will be celebrated at the altar of the Chair of St. Peter in St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican next month. So Anglican Choral Evensong was going to be celebrated in St. Peter's. And of course, St. Peter's was built through Mr. Tetzel going around Europe in the 16th century selling indulgences. And that's what sparked Martin Luther to post his 95 Theses. Because I have to say here, The invitation to celebrate Evensong at St. Peter's reciprocates the Archbishop of Canterbury in welcoming Cardinal George Pell to celebrate Solemn Mass at the High Altar of Canterbury Cathedral in 2015. So in Canterbury Cathedral, this Archbishop George Pell celebrated the Roman Catholic Mass. His name might be familiar to you because he was brought back to Australia within the last year And he's currently on trial for misdemeanors. I'll put it politely like that. So this is the man who celebrated high mass in Canterbury Cathedral. And then again in March of this year, Pope Francis's visit to the Anglican Church All Saints in Rome to celebrate its 200th anniversary was a papal first. Francis held court for nearly two hours, and it talks about the service, the liturgy. Liturgy also included renewal of baptismal vows as an ecumenical demonstration of unity. Being baptised together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation of the ecumenical movement. And I said that last night, that baptism is the point of unity, uh, the initial point of unity where Rome and other people are concerned. In fact, Vatican II says that if you and I have been baptised as believers, we are in communion, albeit imperfect, with the Pope of Rome. Now there's a little gem for you to take home tonight. Anyhow, Archic uh, was what uh, was set up in 1981, and any ecumenical endeavour such as that is without doubt, it has only one end game, and that is to reverse the Reformation. Then in March 1994, the evangelical world was again rocked by the signing and publishing of an agreement called ECT. Evangelicals and Catholics together, the Christian mission for the third millennium. The uh, document was drawn up, where there were two architects, one supposed evangelical and the other Roman Catholic. The uh, evangelical was Charles Colson, Chuck Colson, who had been an aide to President Nixon and then went to prison because of Watergate. He claimed he was born again in prison and he came out, founded prison ministries, and he was regarded as an evangelical. But he was ecumenical to the hilt, as I will show you shortly. Uh, But his wife was a practicing Roman Catholic, and he was quite happy for her to continue on that. So he was one architect, and the other architect was Father Richard Newhouse, who had been a Lutheran and became a Roman Catholic priest. So they drew up all of this big document, and they had a number of affirmations in it. And one of them stated this, We affirm together... That all who accept Christ as Lord and Savior are brothers and sisters in Christ. Evangelicals and Catholics are brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, I read in the Bible that the Lord says, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's important that the Christ that you acknowledge as Lord and Savior is the true Christ. The Christ that we worship and are grateful to is the one who died, was buried, rose again, and is seated in heaven. And there he waits till all his enemies be made his footstool. But the one the Roman Catholic worships is the consecrated wafer. Because when it is held up at the, uh, the sacrifice of the Mass, there are three levels of worship in Roman Catholicism. One for the saints, one for Mary, and the highest is for God alone. And when the priest holds up the wafer, the faithful have to bow the knee and give Latria worship, the highest form of worship, to a piece of bread. So that is their Lord and Savior that they are acknowledging and so on. But, you know, there are other people who will acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, I think of Mormons. Mormons would claim, make the same claim. Uh, Joel Osteen, if you've ever heard of Joel Osteen, uh, he's got a mega church in Houston of Texas, about 40, 45,000 people uh, belong to it. He's a rank heretic, let's put it that way. Uh, but some years ago, when Mitt Romney was running for being president of the United States, and Romney is a Mormon, uh, Austin was asked on television, is Mitt Romney a Christian? And Austin says, well, he acknowledges Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, so that's good enough for me. Well, of course, the only problem is that the Jesus Christ of Mormonism bears no resemblance to the Christ of the Scriptures. According to Mormonism, they have a heavenly father called Elohim who lives on a planet out there in space with his heavenly wives. And they are procreating spirit children who eventually come to earth as you and me. But the first spirit child born to Elohim and one of his heavenly wives was Jesus Christ. And another one who was born was Lucifer. So you and I are spirit brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ and Lucifer, according to Mormonism. But for Joel Osteen, well, if you just make this little mantra, then you're a Christian. What they had to do, of course, in the CCT uh, Mm -hmm. agreement was to somehow combine the evangelical understanding of being born again with the Roman Catholic understanding of being born again, which they claim happens in the sacrament of baptism. So this is what they wrote. on this we are resolved those converted whether understood as having received the new birth for the first time in other words a spiritual conversion if you like or as having experienced the reawakening of the new birth originally bestowed in the sacrament of baptism must be given full freedom and respect as they discern and decide the community in which they will live their new life in Christ so this document basically sanctioned two ways of becoming Christian, either through Holy Spirit, conviction and conversion, or simply being baptized as a baby. So this document, without any doubt, was set to try and reverse the, Re- the Reformation. They also said that it wasn't a theologically prudent or a, a good use of resources for one Christian community to proselytise the others. In other words, evangelicals and Catholics shouldn't try to win converts to each group. Well, in the wake of that, that all the missionaries, the evangelical missionaries and Catholic countries, they should all have been called home. You don't need to, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. It sent shockwaves around the world when that document uh, was signed, uh, partly because of what was in the document, But because of a number of people who signed it and gave their agreement to it i've already mentioned charles colson another was dr bill bright who was the founder of campus crusade for christ but the most high-ranking surprise of all was j.i packer j.i packer highly respected in reformed circles probably a lot of pastors and ministers around the world have his book knowing god and yet here he was endorsing this agreement. Now he was obviously challenged about it, so he wrote a defense of his reasons for signing the document. And in this defense of his signing it, he said this, we need to recognize that good Roman Catholics are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, I would take exactly the opposite view. I would say it's possible that a bad Roman Catholic might possibly be my brother and sister in Christ. Bad in the sense that they reject the false heretical teachings of Roman Catholicism. Uh, It it was very sad to see J.I. Packer going down this line and a few years later he came to Ireland because Ireland launched its own version of ECT. And he had two meetings in Belfast and two in Dublin. And he was accompanied on the platform by Father Pat Collins, a Vincentian priest and there they were trying to justify that we are now brothers and sisters in Christ. The two meetings in Belfast were hosted by Ken Newell, former moderator of the Presbyterian Church and if you hear his name you'll not be surprised that he was involved in it and the two meetings in the south of Ireland were hosted by Trevor Morrow, another former moderator of the Presbyterian Church and again you won't be surprised to hear his name mentioned, because these men are arch-ecumenists. And at the same time as the ECT Ireland uh, document was launched, there was also this book, Adventures in Reconciliation, 29 Catholic Testimonies. It's a very sad book, because it is people who are Roman Catholic talking about what they believe was their conversion and their coming to Christianity. And all of them are totally unscriptural. Many of them are actually linked in with things charismatic about some special baptism of the Spirit which is totally contrary to what the Scriptures teach. Uh, but let me just give you one example because uh, you might know the name. There used to be a priest down the road called uh, Paul Simons and uh, in fact he took part in one of the many debates that I organized in the 1990s in the Loch Centre and uh, He uh, said in his contribution to this book, My parents were married in a Methodist church in London, and when I came along, they had me baptized in the same church. From my experience, I have always believed that in my baptism in the Methodist church, I received the gift of new life and the Holy Spirit. So you can see this idea of baptism. This is going to be the supposed ecumenical meeting point for these people. But anyhow, you had Arctic, you had ECT, and then on the 31st of October, 1999, and note the date, the 31st of October. Now that should trigger something, something to do with Martin Luther on the 31st of October. Well, in 1999, we were confronted with the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification, and it was signed by the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran World Federation. And this is what they said in it. A consensus and basic truths of the doctrine of justification exist between Lutherans and Catholics. The mutual condemnations of former times do not apply to the Catholic and Lutheran doctrines of justification as they are presented in the joint declaration. Well, if they now are agreeing on justification as presented in that declaration, somebody has changed their stance from when they 500 years ago Because it's obviously that the Lutherans have moved, because Rome hasn't budged one inch on her teaching on justification. And of course, uh, in the 31st of October of last year, the Pope went to Sweden and he met with the Lutheran World Federation there. And they kicked off a year of commemoration for the Reformation. Can you imagine Rome and the Pope are commemorating the Reformation? They're trying to turn what should have been a dagger through the heart of Roman Catholic heresy into something that they give thanks for. And the Pope, of course, said it was great Luther brought us back to a more deep study of the Scriptures. Well, he's a Jesuit because the Scriptures for Rome are not just the Bible. It's the Bible and sacred tradition. The sad reality was that although the Lord used Luther to reawaken and rediscover the truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Luther himself still kept much of his Romanism with him, he still believed in baptismal regeneration. He came up with a slightly different understanding of the Mass and he didn't believe in transubstantiation. But he came up with a uh, what he believed was consubstantiation, which wasn't too far away uh, from what Rome teaches. And the Lutheran Church also believed in the state church concept. And so it's really not a surprise that the Lutherans and Rome, that Lu- the Lutherans have been drawn back, basically, into the Roman Catholic fold. So we have uh, Archic, we have ECT, we have the Lutheran uh, Declaration, and then another instrument that's being used to further the ecumenical cause and so reverse the Reformation is the Alpha Course. Uh, The Alpha Course has been on the go for several decades. Uh, The home of the Alpha Course is Holy Trinity Brompton, a charismatic Anglican Church in London. Now, don't get me wrong, I I believe some people have genuinely been converted having attended an Alpha Course, but basically that's in spite of what the Alpha Course teaches. Because what people are introduced to in the Alpha Course is a very skeletal form of Christianity. There's no real meat, the terminology is quite generic, it's not specific and so on. And so Rome was able to endorse the Alpha Course people used to say, well, what's wrong with the Alpha course? And I would say, well, the Church of Rome endorses it. Do I need to say more? Because any so-called course that teaches you about Christianity that Rome is able to endorse, well, then there's something sadly lacking in it. And the reality is there's very little detail in it. And in fact, Rome, what they do is they have a series of follow-up videos uh, which they will then uh, require those who've attended an Alpha course to watch. And the uh, series of videos are called Drink from the Wells of the Church. Not drink from the wells of the Word of God, but drink from the wells of the church. And those videos are presented by a priest called Father Raniero Cantalamessa. Now Father Cantalamessa is no ordinary preacher. <coughs> he is a papal preacher. That means he preaches to the popes. So you need to know your Roman Catholic doctrine and theology if you're going to be preaching to the Popes. And he and Nicky Gumble, and Nicky Gumbel is the main spokesperson for the Alpha Course. They are buddy-buddy. And uh, some years ago, uh, Nicky Gumbel was taken to Rome to meet the then Pope John Paul II. And of course, he, was, he got the open door to do that through Cantillamesa. And when he came home, this is what Nicky Gumbel said, It was a great honor to be presented to Pope John Paul II, who has done so much to promote evangelization around the world. Well, Pope John Paul II, he wrote the foreword for the Catholic Catechism that I showed you last night. And in that foreword, he said it is a sure norm for teaching the faith. And ours, the Catholic Catechism teaches all the heresies that are found in Roman Catholic teaching and so on. So the Alpha Course is certainly being used uh, to reverse the Reformation. In fact, when I was in Canada last month, I talked about the Alpha Course and the Ecumenism and a couple who had been thinking of sending their uh, daughters, twin daughters, to an Alpha Youth Course at a neighbouring church, when they heard this they were rightly concerned. And so the mother got in touch with, uh, it was a lady who was organising this Alpha Course and expressed her concern about Alpha recognizing Rome as a fellow Christian church. And the lady organizing the Alpha course got quite irate and quite angry. And the mother of the twin daughters was very pleased by that reaction because it confirmed to her exactly what I had been saying about it. All over the world, conferences have been held on a mega scale. Vancouver, over in Europe, in America and so on for Alpha, and there is always high-ranking Catholic representation in it. So you can rest assured that Alpha is certainly helping to reverse the Reformation. Then there have been a number of individuals who sadly have helped reverse the Reformation. Back in the late 1940s, a leading evangelist said the three greatest opponents of Christianity are Mohammedism, Islam, Roman Catholicism, and Communism, And then for the next 60 years, he backtracked on that statement. I'm talking about Billy Graham. He started off sounding so good. But in the 1950s, then, he ensured that at every crusade that he organized, there was Roman Catholic representation on the platform. And if at the end of the meeting, if people had gone forward and they were from a Roman Catholic background, they were sent back to a local Roman Catholic church. They were not told you need to get into a Bible-believing church. They were sent back to Rome. Some years ago, uh, Billy Graham was interviewed by Larry King. Larry King was sort of the American equivalent of Michael Parkinson, only he had much brighter braces for his trousers. And uh, he asked uh, Billy Graham this, What do you think of like Mormonism Catholicism? I think the reason Larry King included Mormonism was that he's married to a Mormon. And Billy Graham answered, Oh, I think I have wonderful fellowship with them all. Larry Graham, or Larry King said, You're comfortable with Salt Lake City? You're comfortable with the Vatican? Billy Graham said, Oh, I'm very comfortable with the Vatican. I've been to see the Pope several times. And in fact, the day that he was inaugurated, made Pope, I was preaching in his cathedral in Krakow. I was his guest. Larry King, you like this Pope. Billy Graham, I like him very much, he's very conservative, he and I agree on almost everything. Did you hear that? On the day that Pope John Paul II was selected to be Pope in Rome, back in his cathedral in Krakow, Billy Graham was preaching in that cardinal's cathedral. Now if anybody tells me that was pure coincidence, I have to say, I don't believe you. I believe there are forces at work behind the scenes who are organizing lots of things and they're using religion as one of their tools to achieve their end-time agenda, if I could put it that way. And I believe that Billy Graham was a willing uh, pawn in all of this. Uh, He, as I say, backtracked on Islam and communism, but time doesn't allow me to quote to you what he said. So, as I say, uh, Billy Graham J.I. Packer, I've already mentioned, uh, at the meeting in Dublin that I went to hear J.I. Packer when he was launching ECT Ireland, uh, he gave a very good definition of justification. So there was a Q&A at the end and I put my hand up and I said, Mr. Packer, you've given a very good definition, biblical definition of justification. I said, I see uh, some of the Roman Catholics who were involved in this ECT booklet, Will they now stand up and publicly confirm that they agree with what you have said? And they remained rooted to their seats. They didn't. So, as I say, there was no confirmation from them. So then, another good friend of mine, a former Roman Catholic, who's a minister down in the Dublin area, Mark Fitzpatrick, he got up and he asked Mr. Uh, Packard a question. He said, uh, what are your views on the Pope and the papacy? And this was John Paul II, who was Pope at the time. And Packer said, I view the Pope as a fine Christian man, but I have problems with the papacy. Well, friends, you cannot separate the Pope and the papacy. You only become the Pope because you agree with all that the papacy stands for. That answer by J.I. Packer was the answer of a double-minded man. And the scriptures tell us that they are unstable in all their ways. And J.I. Packer has gone on and involved himself in other ecumenical outreaches and efforts. And he even uh, wrote about Mother Teresa. He talked about her dark night of the soul, which lasted for many years as if she was out of communion for God for, with God for a while, suggesting that there was a time when she was in communion with God. Mother Teresa, she might have appeared to have done a lot of humanitarian work, but she was no Christian. She was uh, someone who wanted to make Hindus better Hindus and Muslims better Muslims. And her God was the wafer. And at a passing out parade of priests in the Vatican, she addressed them and said, It's wonderful that you are now priests, because without you we could not have the Lord in our midst. In ours we couldn't have the consecrated wafer if we didn't have the priests and so on. So, uh, as I say, Packer has gone down the ecumenical line for many years. It's no wonder uh, that Martin Lloyd-Jones had to separate from him and others uh, in the 1960s. I mentioned Charles Coulson, uh, and Charles Coulson is portrayed as an evangelical, but this is another book called Evangelical Catholics. It's written by a man called Keith Furnier, who's a smooth-talking American attorney who works in a Catholic university. And uh, Chuck Colson was asked to write the foreword for it. And this is what Colson said. It's high time that all of us who are Christians come together, regardless of the difference of our confessions and our traditions, and make common cause to bring Christian values to bear in our society. When the barbarians are scaling the walls, there is no time for petty quarreling in the camp. In other words, he thinks Catholics and evangelicals, we are Christians together, and the, all of the social ills of society, we have to combine together to fight this. He fails to understand what the Great Commission is. The Great Commission was to evangelize the world, not to Christianize the world, because that will not happen. So, as I say, uh, Chuck Colson was another. C.S. Lewis, touted as a great evangelical. I hadn't really looked at him in any great depth until a number of years ago, and then I began to look at his book, Mere Christianity. And frankly, I was shocked by what I was reading. This was a man who got it totally wrong on regeneration, on redemption, and on repentance. Of course, his... Best spiritual mentor was J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien was a divided divided Roman Catholic, uh, as was G.K. Chesterton, who was on the go at that time. Uh, As a good example of C.S. Lewis helping to reverse the Reformation, you only have to look where his books are sold. I wrote two books, and I can assure you that none of them are on sale in any bookshops attached to a Catholic chapel. But you go into a lot of these bookshops and you will find rows and rows of books by C.S. Lewis. When it comes to regeneration, he wrote this. There are three things that spread the christ life to us. Baptism, so he believed in baptismal regeneration. Belief and that mysterious action which different Christians call by different names. Holy Communion, the Mass, the Lord's Supper. So for C.S. Lewis, there was no difference between the Mass and Communion. And I explained the radical differences when I was speaking to you last night. So he's wrong on regeneration. He's wrong on redemption in this sense. He underestimates personal redemption. How do I know that? Because he believed in purgatory. He believed that you would have to go and make atonement for outstanding sins, temporal punishment, call it what you like whereas we know the truth that the Lord has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. So he underestimated individual redemption, but he overestimated corporate redemption in this sense that he believed that those who had never heard of Christ, you know, some of them could be all right. Well, I don't believe that because in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul was absolutely insistent when he says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He then went to point out, how can they call upon someone if they haven't heard about him? And so we need to send out missionaries and so on to be able to preach the gospel. And of course, it's through the foolishness of preaching that people are saved. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Without the proclamation of the gospel, no person will be saved. So, as I say, he was wrong on uh, regeneration, redemption. He was also wrong on repentance. He had a strange view of repentance. In the uh, book Mere Christianity, he has a chapter called The Perfect Penitent, and he's talking about Christ. Well, for me, that's blasphemy. To suggest that the Lord was penitent would suggest that he had some sin to confess, if you could put it that way. But He believed that the Lord uh, would never ask us to do something that he hadn't done himself. And in a strange way, he he nearly thinks it was like a vicarious repentance. And if you go to Alan Kearns' Dictionary of Theological Terms, you will find a reference to that terminology, vicarious repentance. In some ways, it's nearly akin to what Cunaites would believe. And I just wonder... Well, C.S. Lewis, did he ever come into contact with Cunyites when he lived in Northern Ireland? But that's purely speculation on my part. Moving on, uh, I mentioned Father Cantalamissa, the papal preacher. And in 2015, uh, we read this, uh, Father Cantalamissa addressed the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh at a Eucharist marking the opening of the General Synod of the Church of England. So that was November 2015. The Church of England was happy to have old Ronnie Arrow uh, preaching at their opening service. Uh, a previous Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, who had Druid connections, uh, he visited uh, Lourdes in 2008. And uh, the Reverend Jeremy Brooks of the Protestant Truth Society said this, Lourdes represents everything about Roman Catholicism that the Protestant Reformation rejected including apparitions, mariolatry and the veneration of saints. At a time when our country is crying out for clear biblical leadership, it is nothing short of tragic that our supposedly Protestant archbishop is behaving as little more than a papal puppet. You just wonder uh, how these people in the Anglican Communion, who when they're being installed or ordained, They swear that the Bible is their supreme standard and that the 39 articles are their subordinate standard. Uh, Because, for instance, number uh, 28 of the Articles of Religion says this, Transubstantiation, or the change of the substance of bread and wine in the supper of the Lord, cannot be proved by holy writ, but is repugnant to the plain words of Scripture, and hath given occasion to many superstitions. So Rowan Williams and all the others would have said, yes, we agree with that, and then they're quite happy to uh, consort with these people who believe in transubstantiation and that type of thing. Uh, Another example of the reversal of the Reformation in 2008, Uh, this was in the Catholic Herald, and it tells us, Plans have been unveiled for a statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary to stand in London in reparation for the destruction of the medieval Catholic shrines during the Reformation. The work will be called Mary Most Holy and will stand on land alongside the River Thames at Chelsea's Embankment Gardens. It has been commissioned by the Art and Reconciliation Trust. It will cost in the region of £1.25 million. Francis Scar, the chairman of the Trust, said, I hope that when we come before this monument we will ask for God's forgiveness and through the intercession of Mary Most Holy we will pray that she will help us put behind our turbulent past and lead us forward in unity, peace and reconciliation. So this statute costing £1.25 million out of public funds obviously uh, was hopefully going to help reverse the Reformation. The uh, General Director of Scripture Union in the south of Ireland is a man called Jim Dunham. And in the uh, Ulster Tatler, I think it was some years ago, it said this, Jim is the full-time General Director of Scripture Union in the Republic of Ireland and Chairman of the Evangelical Catholic Initiative. He has been involved in leading Alpha Bible study courses in his local Catholic parish. He holds a Higher Diploma in Theological Studies from the Pontifical University in Maynooth. So the head of Scripture Union in the south of Ireland is a well-qualified Roman Catholic who was involved in that ECT Ireland uh, document and so on. Uh, There have been lots of other examples. Uh, In February of this year, Radio Ulster Morning Service was from Fitzroy Presbyterian Church where Ken Newell used to be the minister, but he's retired, so... Uh, a chap called Steve Stockman is there and uh, they had a guest preacher uh, that morning in February who was Father Martin McGill of the Sacred Heart of Old Park. <clears throat> Some years ago there was a, an endeavor called Par to Change. They claimed that they weren't ecumenical but I downloaded lots of meetings that they were having and it was all ecumenical. Uh, there was one uh, in St. Matthias Church, Our Lady of Good Counsel in Colliney in County Dublin. And the speakers were Bishop Martin Drennan, Catholic Auxiliary Bishop, and Bishop Ken Clark, Church of Ireland Bishop. Ken Clark, supposedly one of the evangelicals in the Church of Ireland. I think his nickname was Fanta. I don't think that means he was an orange man. But anyhow, uh, this is uh, evidence that it was an ecumenical endeavour. And I could go on, Alistair, or Alf McCreary, constantly plugging uh, the ecumenical cause and wanting to see the uh, Reformation reversed. And yet he was a, an elder, he may still be, uh, in the Presbyterian church. Uh, you just wonder what is happening. Uh, Rick Warren, you may have heard of, purpose-driven life, purpose-driven church, supposed evangelical, he's nothing of the kind, I can assure you. He was interviewed on a Catholic TV channel in America, and the host put this question to him. What is your secret to reaching people every day, every week, not only in your writing, but when you speak? What is it? What is this communication gift, if you will, if you could decode, because a lot of preachers would like to know? And this was Warren's answer. Well, the main thing is love always reaches people. Authenticity, humility. Pope Francis is the perfect example of this. He is doing everything right, you see. People will listen to what we say if they like what they see. And as our new Pope, he was very symbolic in his first Mass with people with aids. So there's Rick Warren, this supposed evangelical, talking about our new Pope. Well, he may be Rick Warren's Pope, but he's certainly not my Pope. And uh, then you've maybe heard of the Word of Faith movement or the health and wealth gospel, or the name it and claim it, or some people call it the blab it and grab it. Uh, (coughs) They're a sort of extreme charismatic grouping. They appear on lots of the uh, satellite TV channels. Uh, The main spokesperson now, it used to be the two Kenneths, Kenneth Hagan and Kenneth Copeland, but Kenneth Hagan died a number of years ago. But Kenneth Copeland and his wife Gloria, together with John and Carol Arnott, And they were the pastors of the church in Toronto that spawned the so-called Toronto Blessing back in 1994. Well, the Copelands and the Arnott's and a few others, they went to the Vatican a couple of years ago and they had lunch with Pope Francis. And Copeland came back, stood up publicly and said, the protest is over. Well, it may be over for him, but for God's true people, it is certainly not over. And... uh, Another who is highly regarded in Reformed circles is a man called Tim Keller. Uh, Tim Keller, I have, i afraid, precious little time for. Uh, I'll come to his ecumenism in a moment, but he is a theistic evolutionist. And I can tell you that for me, that is a red line. Mm-hmm. Unless you believe in six-day creation as revealed by God and as confirmed by God in the fourth commandment, Well, I'm afraid I don't have much time for you. I certainly will not be fellowshipping with you. Because if you don't believe the creation story as outlined in the opening chapters of Genesis, you do not understand the remedy to that problem that was caused in the Garden of Eden. And of course, the remedy was the Lord Jesus Christ. For as by one man sin entered into the world, and everyone born thereafter is in a state of unrighteousness because of his sin, we're condemned in Adam. And the only way we can be justified is to be righteous in Christ. But Keller is a, the- a theistic evolutionist. But apart from that, he has a high regard for Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits. And he also quotes other Catholic mystics. Uh, women who have visions and that type of thing. So Tim Keller is a man to be wary of without any doubt. So those are some of the uh, things that are being used to reverse the Reformation initiatives and individuals. So let me then come finally to our last heading and that is rejoicing in the Reformation. Some people like to say, well, it was just a, uh, a matter of linguistic semantics we, we, we just got the our understanding of the same words uh, we got them mixed up and really we were talking the same thing no it wasn't a matter of linguistic semantics it was a matter of a liberating spirit the Holy Spirit setting souls free from religious bondage because they were in bondage to the Roman Catholic system it swept them into freedom in Christ and as I have often tonight and last night mentioned, Rome are the equivalent of the Judaizers. And in his letter addressing that problem in Galatians 5, Paul said this, Stand fast therefore in the liberty with which Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And that is what these ecumenists who are seeking to drag us into uh, bondage and, uh, with Rome they are seeking to entangle us into that system. And that's why I read from 2 Corinthians 6, we are not to be yoked together with these unbelievers. Uh, I've mentioned this Judaizing connection. Uh, a very good wee book, if you ever get a copy of it, it's called Salvation, the Bible, and Roman Catholicism by a former Roman Catholic called William Webster. And in one of the chapters, he actually sets out a table And on the left are 15 features common to the Judaizers. And then in another column just across from it, you have those 15 features found in Roman Catholicism. So they are the same as that. I've mentioned about those who sought to uh, put a new slant on the Galatians letter that it wasn't to do with salvation, it was just to do with... uh, membership of a church and one of the leading advocates of that is a a former bishop in the Anglican church called M.T. Wright he's written some very good factual historical books but when it comes to theology and doctrine he is not to be trusted and he came out with a new perspective in Paul and that simply was taking us back into bondage with Rome So why have we reasons to rejoice in the Reformation? Well, first of all, it established that there is only one head of the church. It kind of decapitated a, a second pretended head of the church. swept that away. Secondly, it made redundant the Roman Catholic priesthood, which I think I said last night was basically a priesthood, only dressed up in new vestments and so on. Same idea with Rome as the Aaronic priesthood. In the Old Testament, you went to the temple, a sacrifice was selected, and the priest offered it for you to get forgiveness of sins. And in Rome, you go to the chapel, the priest offers the sacrifice of the Mass in the hope that your sins will be forgiven. It opened up direct access for confession and forgiveness. As David mentioned earlier, we can go directly to God. That's why when Christ said finish, the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom. Because previous to that, only the high priest could go in behind it once a year. But now it was opened and all those trusting alone in the finished work of Christ alone could go directly to God for forgiveness. Uh, when Simon the sorcerer wanted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit with money, Peter said to him, your money perish with you. You better seek forgiveness from God. Peter didn't say to him, stay there, I'll go around the corner and I'll, I'll knock up a confessional box and then you come round and confess to me and I'll pardon you and give you some penance to do. No, it opened up direct access to God. And it reclaimed assurance of full forgiveness and certainty of heaven. As I told you last night, Rome denies that and if you assume that you have full forgiveness and certainty of going to heaven, That's a mortal sin in their eyes which will take you directly to hell. It opened up the way to true and lasting peace. John 14, the Lord said, I'm going away, but peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Paul talked about the gospel of peace. He said, he is our peace, namely Christ. And of course, he is the prince of peace. I have heard former Roman Catholics I'm friendly with telling me that when loved ones of theirs who were still Roman Catholics were nearing the end of life's journey, there was a look of terror on their face for the simple reason that they had no idea what was going to happen to them when they died. They had no peace with God. They had no assurance that they were going to go to heaven. It exposed lots of superstition, Mary's mediation, saints' intercession, the purchase of forgiveness via indulgences, sacramental salvation, self-atonement and expiation in purgatory. It showed those things up for the lies that they are, because they are lies. It restored sole authority to the written word of God. And it restored the truth of the Bible as summed up in the five solas: Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. And I've seen documents drawn up to bring uh, ecumenical grouping together. And they'll talk about, oh yes, we believe in faith in Christ. But the important word alone is missing. There was a group years ago called Promise Keepers for Men. And it started off and they had the word alone in it. So no Roman Catholics came into it and none of them were on the the board overseeing it. So what did they do? They changed their statement of faith. They took the word alone out, and that brought Roman Catholics onto the board. That's how devious these people are. And you know, it swept away the likes of this. This was from the Belfast Telegraph of March this year. That's a, a statue of uh, Mary from Fatima. It's actually not the original one, it's a replica because this year marks a hundred years of the supposed apparitions of Mary at Fatima. So the Vatican commissioned six replica statues of Mary and they're being taken around the world. And this was down in Uri Cathedral and there are the poor people buying in front of this. Of course it's another money making scam. That's all that it is. And so we got rid of all of those things. I talked last night about a retrieval of the gospel of grace. It was also a retrieval of the gospel. And I want to give a quote uh, written by a good friend of mine, Rob Zins, an American who took part in debates here, including the one with Paul Simons in Loch Moss. And uh, in his book, On the Edge of Apostasy, Rob said this about the gospel. The gospel does more than explain. It offers a promise based upon the explanations It offers eternal life based solely on the finished work of the atonement. It offers the promise of God that all sins are and will be forgiven for the sake of Christ alone. It offers the end of all personal sacrifices for personal sins. It offers the promise of all guilt removed on the basis of Christ alone and that through faith alone. It offers the security that all those in Christ will live protected with him forever and will not lose this standing with God. Furthermore, the Gospel offers an end to all of man's vain attempts to do enough to warrant salvation. The Gospel explains that Jesus has paid it all and that there is no our share or our part involved. The Gospel explains how God gives us Christ and His righteousness for our right standing with God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation because it holds the truth of all that God has done for mankind. He gives us Christ and his righteousness. That's why I chose the opening hymn, Jehovah Sikkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Paul wanted to be found in him, not having his own righteousness, but being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So we have many reasons to rejoice. Now, what do we need to do in this day and age when there are those seeking to reverse their affirmation? I mentioned Rob Zins, my friend in America. And in March of this year, his wife, Nancy, died. She had battled cancer for four years. And it was her wish and his that I would speak at her memorial service. What an honour. And Nancy had a great way with little sayings and pithy words. And one of the things that she used to say was, The main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And in number 62 of his 95 Theses, Luther said this. The true treasure of the church is the holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. And that is the main thing. Because it's all of God and it's all of Christ. How can I finish? Well, I want to quote from two hymns and then I'm going to finish with a quote by Spurgeon. One of the hymns that will be known to you, it says "As Jesus, the sinner's friend, we hide ourselves in thee. God looks upon thy sprinkled blood. It is our only plea. He sees thy spotless robe. It covers all our sin. The golden gates have welcomed thee and we may enter in. Thou hast fulfilled the law, and we are justified. Ours is the blessing, thine the curse. We live, for thou hast died. That hymn talked about the curse. C.H. Spurgeon said this, commenting on Galatians 3 and verse 13, which says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse, being made a curse for us. Spurgeon wrote, you must either be cursed by God or else you must accept Christ as bearing the curse instead of you. This is the truth which the apostles preached and suffered and died to maintain. It is this for which the reformers struggled. It is this for which the martyrs burned at Smithfield. It is the grand basic doctrine of the reformation and the very truth of God. And Horatius Bonner in a, home, in a hymn wrote this. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. And thanks to the Reformation, we can stake our whole eternity upon the sinless life and the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. May God bless what we have shared tonight.